Okay, we are in Genesis. If you would like some notes and you weren't here last week, we do have some in the back. We started the book of Genesis. We got through the major themes, the purpose, major uh, people, chapter summaries. We've been working on some interpretive issues in Genesis. Good to gather to talk about God's Word, to learn about God's Word, to take a, a quick tour as we're doing throughout this year of the Old Testament. I want to open and, and ask God's help as we interpret some difficult passages this morning. Lord, I'm thankful for your word, everything from the very beginning until the very end. Your scripture is precious to us. It is truly a great treasure. It is, it is gold. It is jewels. It is precious. And I pray that we would guard what you've entrusted to us, that we would treasure it up, that we would want to study it more, and that we might never forsake it, turn from it, cast it aside, but we would come and hear from your word regularly. And I pray that throughout this class, as we look at books of the Old Testament, you would remind us of your grace, that you would remind us of your, your working in the salvation of men and women throughout history. I pray that you would help us as we interpret the Genesis, help us to use the right exegetical skills, the right intent that the author had as we consider some challenging passages. Well, we pray that you would give us insight in the name of Christ. Amen. Old Testament survey, Genesis. Just a quick review from last week. In the Hebrew Bible, it's called In the Beginning, but that's not what we call it. Uh, we got our name Genesis from the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation. Genesis means origin, source, generation, which pretty much summarizes the, the theme. It's where things come from. It's the origin. It's the source. And it also tells us the generation. So purpose is always important when you study a book. What is the purpose? Here it is. It describes the origin of the human race, the introduction of sin. So where, where did we come from? Where does sin come from? The confusion of languages and the divine choice of Israel. Israel. Very important because the rest of the Old Testament is about the nation of Israel. Where did Israel come from? How did it come into being? Did they do something to earn God's grace? Were they the best nation in the world? Were they the most holy people? The best pagans God could find to worship Him? How did He go about redeeming them? How did He go about saving them? What are the promises He made to Abraham? Moses, of course, wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. And this was our outline, the first 11 chapters, primeval history, the very beginnings, things that, things that occurred in the far, far past. Primeval history covered creation, the fall, the flood, and where nations come from. So these things were, were hard for us sometimes to consider because it, it speaks of a different time when, when there was no sin at the creation or when it was just a few people on the earth with Adam and Eve or what happened at the flood. But after chapter 11, it, it becomes more uh, clear to us, I think, more, more relatable, I should say, as far as what's going on in the world. And so the rest of the book is patriarchal history. Not patriarchs in the way that it's used in uh, circles today. Patriarch has a bad you know, bad connotation. That means an evil man rolling over his family and abusing them. Patriarch just means fathers. And so the fathers of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, 
That's the rest of the Bible. So a lot of attention is paid to Abraham because he's the, the father. And then Joseph. Why so much on Joseph? Well, the different thoughts on that? I think it's probably to show God's grace. To show God's grace. And, and even though Joseph was sold into slavery, he gets raised up, becomes the number two man in Egypt, and ends up being part of the physical salvation, the physical redemption of his family. Because he's the... Because he's the ruler there, God brings his family down. And then Joseph's able to take care of them. And he says that all this happened, not because of your evil intent. The brothers sold them into slavery. That was evil. All this happened, why? Because it was God's sovereign plan. God meant it for good. We went through some key dates. Um, we're gonna come, we'll come back to the dates. That was one of our interpretive issues. I'm going to be more here because I think the most literal reading of the Old Testament puts you in about six to 7,000 years from today, which would be about 5,000 B.C. If you put some gaps in the genealogy, you might get up to 10. Both of these are considered an old, uh, young earth, sorry. Young earth view. Young earth. Who's heard that term, young earth? Young earth versus old earth. Old earth would be millions, billions of years. Young earth. You're down in the thousands of years. You know, there's, there's, there could be some gaps in the genealogy. And, and based on what Matthew does in Matthew 1, it's possible. There are just a few people skipped. In other words, they go from grandfather to grandson. But there's not that many. And so I'm, I'm still going around the most literal in the uh, Hebrew key chapters we covered. So let's move along now to... Unless you have questions on any of those things that we covered last week, we'll move to the interpretive issues that we're looking at. I'm not sure how far we made it. We, I know we covered this one, the structure. This is not a huge theological issue. Nobody's uh, starting a new church or denomination over it. But when you're looking at the book, trying to study it, it's kind of important to see how did the author organize it. I think he's organized it by biographical material. So that's, that's my choice there. Most preachers are going to preach it that way. Most commentaries are going to read that way. It's just not uh, best, I think, to see it by the generation lists that are there in the Old Testament. We covered this one last week, right? Through number five. So the nature of Genesis, the first section, is it a myth? Is it symbolic? Or is it real, historical? Narrative, a real history. What did I choose on that last week? See, it's real because there are lots of clues. We take it literal, first of all. We understand it to be narrative. But there's 64 geographical terms, places. Uh, there's 88 personal names, 48 generic names, 21 cultural items. And the New Testament confirms that there was a real Adam, that there was a real Abel, and so on down through that section. A real Noah. So these are the different theories about creation. Which one did I choose? C. Hopefully you're, you're with the original creation understanding there. You can always listen to the recording if you want to break down on what these gap theory recreation means. And then what's the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God or the wind of God in the beginning of Genesis? 
Most translations, I think, say Spirit of God. And that's the better understanding there. It's not just the wind from God, because the, the word ruach in Hebrew could mean wind, that could mean spirit, could mean breath. But the question is not what could it mean. It's based on the context, what does it mean? What the author intend? When Moses wrote that, what was he trying to tell us? That the Holy Spirit was there from creation. That's the idea. I don't think he was just saying God blew a great wind like he did in Exodus whenever he made a pathway through the Red Sea. The meaning of day. This one's so good, we've got to cover it again. What's the meaning of yom, day? Is it 24 hours? Is it an age, the day-age theory? Does each day mean something different? Sometimes a million years, sometimes a thousand years in Genesis 1. The, the views really just end up multiplying here. Is it just God's way of talking to us? It doesn't really mean anything about time when he uses the word day. It's just his, his way of revealing it to us. Is it all just a literary framework? It has nothing really to do with time at all? Or is it just analogical to help us understand? We work six days a week. God works six days a week. It's just an analogy. Well, I'm going with the 24-hour day for a few reasons, evening and morning. It's really hard to do that with a thousand or a million or a billion years. How do you have an evening and morning and a billion-year time span? Uh, everywhere else, evening and morning is used with day. It means 24-hour day. Uh, it, there's a numerical adjective in front of it, the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day, and then on the seventh day, God rested. So any time in the Bible there's actually a number in front of the word yom in the Old Testament, it, it's indicating a 24-hour day. And then Moses just says in Exodus 20:11 that God created the earth, the world, in six days. And on the seventh, he rested. And he's teaching them about the Sabbath. The Jews on the Sabbath, do they think that's a real 24-hour day? They do. What are they? In fact, they're very legalistic about it today, right? Go to Israel, they, they shut down. Or you can't take an elevator in that 24-hour time span between Friday night and Saturday night. You can't. You can't even get on the elevator because that's considered work. And they were afraid to break the Sabbath. Israel's always understood it, and Moses understood the Sabbath day is 24 hours. So when Moses says the previous six days, he's using the same idea of day there, 24-hour period. Okay, now we're on the new content. What is the image of God? The image of God. God created man in his image, in his likeness. And Genesis 1, Genesis 2. What's this mean? What's this mean? Well, it, could, it could, could mean various things. Again, it's not what it could mean, but it's what it does mean in context here. What the intent of the author was. But some of the choices suggested by scholars. That all of man is just a reflection of God. So all of mankind reflects God. Basically, mankind's like a mirror and we reflect God. Some problems with that interpretation, especially today. If we still have the image of God. And all of man is a reflection of God. What's the problem there? Sin, we're not perfect. We're not a very good reflection of God. Yeah. Nor, nor does the Bible ever really say that we're a reflection of God. That's a strange language for Scripture. Uh, B, the spiritual part of man is uh, a reflection of God. So not all of us, just our spirit. Spirit's still corrupt though, isn't it? Still sinful, right? It still has 
a corruption to it. Again, the word reflection, I think, is the, the term I'm not liking. You guys have this? Number yeah, six? I just don't agree with all of them. You don't agree with all of them. <laughs> well, it's, it's multiple choice, and I, I don't think we have another page, so you have to pick one. Uh, C, God's representative over the earth as he rules over it. So this is the idea that the whole purpose of creating Adam and Eve and, and assigning Adam to rule over the earth and have dominion over it and cultivate it uh, deals with the image of God. So the ruling aspect. And then uh, human plurality, male and female, <coughs> together, form a unity. That's a reflection. So three of them have reflection. And I just think if, if that was going to be the issue, it would be stated more specifically. There would be a, a more terminology in the Bible describing reflection. But is, it, is there terminology in Scripture that describe man as the representative? Well, there is. Genesis 1. Also, uh, let's look at Psalm 8. This is after the fall. So Genesis 1, okay, Adam and Eve, but then the fall comes. Certainly, mankind isn't still considered ruling over the earth, are they? Uh, Psalm 8, verse 4. What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. So God has crowned mankind with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So this is David writing of just mankind in general, how great God is to create us and to assign us. He didn't make us like a, a dumb animal. He made us living creatures that represent him. So I would say based on the wording in Genesis 1 of what God has told us to do, and based on Psalm 8, what am I going to go with? C. Back to Psalm 8. Where do we think that's ultimately going to end up? So man is called to rule over the works of God's hands. We're not able to really do that because we try, but it's corrupt in us. Our, our, our nature's corrupt. So ultimately, we need a perfect ruler. So these passages get applied to Christ as the ultimate perfect representative. He is the image of the Father, it says in Colossians. The fullness of deity dwells in Him. So if you want to see the Father, where do you look at? You look at Christ. So Christ is the perfect representative especially in his humanity as he reigns over the earth when he returns. Well, what I'm saying here is the image of God that's mentioned, we're created in his likeness and his image, and on our God the Trinity, uh, that's best represented as we rule over the earth. Even though since the fall, we failed to do that because we're corrupt. Does each person in this room still have the image of God? It doesn't go away. You can't get rid of it. That's what people try to do sometimes when they harm themselves or kill themselves, but... You can't. We're all created in the image of God. But it's corrupted. Yes. With Christ, you're still not perfect, but you're closer to fully reflecting it. So, in our, in our homes, for example, men in our homes, redeemed in Christ, we are to love our wives, not provoke our children. We are to be able to rule, in a sense, over our homes, Sometimes in America we think of rule as a bad thing because we don't rule. We elect presidents and representatives. But, but rule in the Bible is often a good thing and it just means have dominion, have authority. 
men and those of us in Christ are supposed to have authority with uh, the way that God would want us to. Women over their children, same thing. So the idea here is representing God in a way when we live it out, when we rule over creation. Ultimately, that's not going to be perfect, even, even as we're redeemed. We'll fully be perfect when Christ returns. We have a resurrected body. He's the perfect ruler, and we will what? Rule with Him. So there's still a reigning aspect going on as we reign upon the earth. Rule over cities, He says. I'll give this, this one, this disciple will rule over this city, for example. And so that's still there. That's not gone away because of the fall. So we still do try to reign, even though it's, it's not perfect. Because you know, when you go to work, you're, you're trying to take dominion over whatever you're building. Trying to take that mess of stuff and make something out of it. And in a sense, that's what work is designed to do. Okay, who's the your seed and her seed? Let's look at Genesis 3.15. After the fall, God comes, he finds them, and he, he lays out the curse and its effects. And in verse 15 of chapter 3, I will put enmity, enmity, what's enmity? Hostility, Hostility fighting anger. Enmity between you, who's he talking to here? Go back to verse 14, the Lord, has, Lord God said to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman. Between Satan and the woman. Who's the woman? Eve in this case. Between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you, Satan, shall bruise him on the heel. This is tough. Even in our, it's not really theologically, but even the NASB here doesn't capitalize him in that last line. You shall bruise him. So, Who's being discussed here? Well, the seed there, if it's just taken singular, Satan's representative, that's your seed. God says, between your seed, Satan, his representative, and the Messiah. So who would be Satan's representative when Christ was crucified? You say the world power. Who was that? The Jews and the Romans and Pilate. So just sort of Satan's representative would be the, the, the powers and rulers that Jesus said we we're going to put him to death. And of course the Messiah would be Christ. If we were looking at, let's say the end times, Satan's representative has a name, Antichrist. And then the Messiah is coming back to defeat him and rule over the earth. Or is the, the seed supposed to be understood as more corporate? Just kind of the wicked people and the righteous people are always hostile, always fighting, always at odds. Now that's true, isn't it? Isn't, let's just say those who are righteous because they've been redeemed. Are Christians being persecuted by the world? That's true. But we're not just looking for true statements. We want to know what was intended with 3.15, Genesis 3.15. And, and others would say uh, it, it's both corporate and singular. There's just a continuing hostility always between everything of God and everything in the world and of Satan. What's the best view? I think the best view is just going to be Satan's representative and the Messiah. The reason is, go back to the passage. He, Satan's representative, shall bruise you on the head. On the head. So there's a bruising on the head. What does a bruising on the head do? 
It hurts really bad. And often that's described as something you would do to kill somebody. That's vital. You're, you're going for the head. But on the other hand, Satan's only going to bruise him, the seed of the woman, on the heel. A bruise on the heel is not, unless you're Achilles, it's not going to kill you, right? But, uh, and Achilles probably didn't really get killed that way. So, um, a bruise on the heel is just, it, it's nothing. Yeah, Christ died, but he was raised again. It doesn't stop him. So, the idea is, um, he shall bruise you on the head. Christ is going to kill Satan, wipe him out, defeat him once and for all. But Satan's only going to bruise him on the heel. He can't be defeated, in other words. So I think the, the best analogy there is to what happens at the cross. And none of the New Testament writers specifically pick up this exactly, though, but it's often just called the early gospel, the proto Evangelion, the, the proto-gospel, the before the gospel gospel. A little seed of the gospel here. Because who is her seed? Well, it can't just be people because it says he. He shall bruise you. And, and in my translation, it's the he is capitalized. I think they got that right. That's going to be the Messiah. And then you shall bruise him. I think him should have been capitalized at the end in that last line. So that's a good question. And, and that could be on this list. I mean, I just picked uh, a few. Uh, it doesn't say specifically how. Um, but yeah, that's a big issue that's probably, I would rate it a little less than these others we're looking at. But yeah, we could we could, we could could put it on there. Is is it a real snake? Is it is a snake talking? Do, do animals talk? We're not told that specific. Uh, I, I personally think as I study the passage and take it, uh, the literal interpretation, is it does say a serpent, and that word is used later in the Bible to mean what we consider a serpent. There was some ability for it to speak, either by Satan's power, or some people, and I know it sounds like Narnia, but some people think animals were able to communicate differently back then. I, I wouldn't go that far. But somehow it was able to speak, and they're not shocked at it. You ever notice? What's this snake doing talking to me? Adam, get over here, you know? They just, it seems like it's natural to them. It's just kind of interesting, but we don't want to speculate too much more than we already have. So, uh, and, and because of the curse, um, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Now some will just say, well, that's, that's just God confirming what the snake already did. But I, I tend to think he was able to walk and uh, at that point, no longer. And that shouldn't surprise us. There are a lot of things that happened to humanity and to the planet after the fall that didn't happen before. So um, that's just looking at the text carefully and trying to see what Satan is doing there. Some would say Satan has the form of a serpent. And it's not just the animal, but he shows up in his angelic form and it has some kind of serpent. Again, I don't think his serpent is used a lot. But it's clear that it's Satan. 
especially later in the Bible, he's, he said Satan deceived Eve. So probably he's taking control of the serpent and using it to speak. It's as far as we'll go on that one. All right, here's the big one. Here's the big one. The sons of God in Genesis 6. It's not a big one theologically, right? Nobody's losing their salvation over this. Can't lose your salvation anyway, right? But no one's going to be declared a heretic based on your view here. I like it because it helps us look at what does the whole Bible say about this issue. So Genesis 6-2, this is leading up to the flood. The flood hasn't happened. Uh, let's start in verse 1. Now it came about when man, uh, when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. They took wives for themselves, or it just could be read women. They took women for themselves, whomever they chose. Then, so after that, the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. So at this point, whatever's going on here in verse 2 makes God angry. We'll talk about what it is, or the options anyway, but it makes God angry, and he's going to now judge the earth. Then right after that verse, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So what's the question here? Well, it all depends on who are the sons of God. Verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. They had children with them and very likely what verse 4 is saying is that the children, or at least some of them, are these Nephilim, these great men. They're large in stature, and they're able to fight and make a mighty name for themselves, probably kill many people in battle. So who are the sons of God? Well, the options. Fallen angels, the godly sons of Seth, the dynastic rulers. These are just the kings of old. So you have a good line of kings and a bad line of kings. Sons of God are the bad line, and the, the daughters of men are the good line. The royal heroes, that's not really an option. There's no heroes in that story, right? Are there any heroes up until this point, really? God's a hero. Um, that's about it. Uh, let's see. I mean, maybe we could go down through the genealogy in, in chapter 5 and find some some heroes, but not real true heroes. Uh, the men denoting their origin from God. So, uh if I'm working down the list, what I'm going to cross off, this one's too too vague. This one, there's no hero brought out anywhere around this passage. I mean, the last guy I mentioned was Lamech. And he had two wives and said he was going to kill whoever he wanted and do whatever he wanted. And then Noah's mentioned in verse 32. But we don't really get to know Noah until after chapter 6 or later in chapter 6. So the dynastic rulers was popular for a while. But again, there's, there's no indication of good kings and bad kings ruling. Good rulers and bad rulers at this point. Just not brought out in the text. So we can cancel that out. So we're really left with these last two. The godly sons of Seth and fallen angels. What's the problem with fallen angels? Jesus said angels don't marry. In heaven. We'll come to that. Um... And what y'all might not know, but what's the problem with godly sons of Seth? 
Where are they in this passage, right? Why does he say daughters of men? Or where does he say sons of, the sons of God are, are the evil, right? The, the idea that they're saying is the godly sons of Seth had children. That's, that's represented as the daughters of men. And the sons of God uh, are the you know, evil, I guess, descendants of Cain. And they should not have intermarried. Or maybe some would flip it around and say the sons of God are good in this case. The sons of God are Seth's line, and they looked at the daughters of men, which are all the sinful people out there. They shouldn't have intermarried with him. Should have kept the line more pure. So which one am I going with? I'm going with the A. So let me tell you why. And when we look at passages like this, we need to take what the whole Bible says and think about it theologically. Because it's a challenging passage. He doesn't tell us who sons of God are, so we've now got to study it out. Who is he talking about? What is he talking about? What's going on here? Because it's important. The flood results from this passage or what's happening in this passage. See verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of the man was great on the earth and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now we didn't need any help to do that, but certainly an introduction of fallen angels affecting the human genome or the human line are going to affect sin in the world if that's what happened. So you look up sons of God. I didn't put the references down. I did when we went through this in in theology class. Sons of God mentioned three other times, I believe. Three other times. What's it referring to all three other cases that the sons of God are mentioned? Angels. They're all angels. Twice they're mentioned in um, Job. And one of the passages deals with, were you there, Job, when the sons of God sung at creation, when the stars came out, when I created the stars, the sons of God were with me. Who is he talking about? Angels. Man wasn't created at that point. There is no people at the point that the stars are created. So the sons of God in the rest of the Old Testament always point to angels. If this was not angels, it'd be the only passage with that exact phrase. And you might recall in Hebrew, I mean in theology, I even got the Hebrew verses out and we looked at the words highlighted. Who remembers that? That didn't scare anybody enough to put it in their mind? So they're saying that the sons of God, or they're saying that angels came down and saw the daughters were good and they married them, took them for wives? Angels I think, yeah, them. fallen angels inhabiting, possessing men. And fathers of these daughters seem to be happy to give them to these men who are probably very powerful, very destructive. Yeah, so the focus is on how evil mankind is getting. Yes, well, the fallen angels just kind of give an indication of how bad it's getting. Things are getting really bad. So, let's take the whole Bible approach. We're going to now. So, sons of God's only used as angels in other cases. That's a somewhat of a determiner. Let's go over to the New Testament, Second Peter one, because if it's if it's just dealing with Seth's godly line and Cain's evil line. Where do these Nephilim come from? What makes that so evil? I mean, all throughout the Old Testament, we have believers marrying unbelievers. That's a big problem in Israel, right? Um, I'm not sure that's enough for, for, for God to do what he did. Some would say it doesn't matter. God can do what he wants. True, but he's telling us why he did it here. So we are in uh, Second Peter. Is that Second Peter 2, not 1? 
All right, my trusty assistant, Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Now listen to this passage. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then he goes on in verse 6, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So we see a timeline being expressed here in Second Peter chapter 2. What's it a timeline of? God's judgment in the Old Testament. And he's going to go on to make the case that these false teachers aren't going to escape judgment. If God punished fallen angels, he punished the whole world, he punished Sodom and Gomorrah, why is he going to let false teachers go? He's not. They're going to be punished, Peter says. Don't worry, they're going to be punished. Just because they're successful now and on TV and making millions of dollars and tricking and fooling and leading people astray, we don't think that God's blessing them. They're going to be judged as well. So let's go back to verse 4. When did God not spare angels when they sinned and cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness? Well, there's only really two options before Noah, if we take this as a timeline, which he's laying out a timeline in Second Peter. There's only two options. It's either this passage in Genesis 6 or when they all fell originally. What's the problem with they all fell originally? Well, if they all fell, then they're all in this hell place. They sinned, and then God put them in a place called hell, pits of darkness, reserved for judgment. And later, you remember in Revelation, it says that this pit of darkness, the abyss, is opened up. What comes out? Demons come out. And they torture and punish the, the part of God's judgment in Revelation. So not extremely clear. It's not quoting the passage from Genesis 6. But we have to ask, when did angels get condemned to the pits of darkness? Now we get it to Jude. That's much more clear, I think. Jude 6. This, this is very clear. So, remember, yes, Jesus did say the angels do not marry. Angels in heaven are angels. We're going to be like angels in heaven in the final eternal state. We're not going to marry. Yet, we see this here in Jude. Jude 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, so angels were supposed to keep boundaries, but they didn't. They went outside the boundaries. So we're talking of evil angels here. They're the only ones who would do this. He, God, has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So there's, a, there's angels, and they're kept, they're bound up, and they're thrown in a dark, deep, dark pit, just like Peter said. And then verse 7, just as. What is just as? See how we're focusing in on the grammar? It's, it's like. These angels sinned and got thrown into the pit. Just like they sinned. Just like Sodom and Gomorrah. And the cities around them. Since they in the same way as these. Notice the grammar. Who's the they? They. The angels. In the same way as these. The ones he just talked about. Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities. They, those things over there I just talked about angels, and these things I just talked about here, Sodom and Gomorrah. He's making a comparison. Since they, the angels, in the same way as these, 
engage, indulge, sorry, indulge in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. That's how they broke their bounds. They went beyond the, the line. They went beyond the borders that God had set up, sinfully speaking. And they're exhibiting as an example and undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So it tells us the comparison there. What happened in Sodom and Gomorrah? We know that when it's a little more clear, right? What happened? Well, they went after gross immorality and strange flesh. What's that? Homosexual sins, homosexual desires. Even though people say today that's not what happened, that's not what God punished them for, it is if you're Genesis 18 and 19. So they went after strange flesh. Men were wanting to lie with men. Even though we know that they were angels, they thought they were men. They broke the boundaries that God had set up for men. The angels also broke the boundaries and in the same way went after strange flesh. When could that have ever happened? Well, either, either Jude's talking about something that's not anywhere else in the Bible. Some say that. That's what Jude's talking about. It's, it's just something Jude knows about, but we don't. Or we have to find it somewhere in Scripture. And the only place I can find it, Genesis 6. Genesis 6, 2 and 4. So I'm going with fallen angels. Does that mean everything can be explained? We know what happened, how it happened. Uh, If we read the text literally, there's no indication of godly sons of Seth. Somehow uh, demons were possessing people. We know that happens. It happens in the New Testament. What do we see with the man in the tombs? Superhuman strength. Break the chains. He can do whatever he wants. His body seems to be superhuman with, with Satan's power. How has that happened? Because he has thousands thousands of demons inside him so somehow maybe maybe it was so bad that men were inviting that you know inviting demons to come in that's what pagans have done throughout history they would actually invite a demonic spirit to take over them and it's thought that a lot of these people jesus comes up and and heals that are especially the ones that are pagans like the demoniac at the tombs Maybe, we don't know for certain, but it was certainly possible in that time that he invited some of those to start coming in and giving him power and then lost control because thousands came in. And I think that fits better with the Nephilim here. They were great men of old. They're later called giants, the Nephilim are. Again, this, you know, A is not perfect with no issues. What about Jesus? Well, he does say the angels in heaven. So good angels don't break their bounds. They don't do this thing. That's what he's talking about, angels in heaven. Um... And he's also talking about a future. So he's not necessarily saying these things have never happened, but in the future, and this is good angels as an example. So uh, that's just a basic run through of that. I think Jude 6 and 7 is our passage. If you read the rest of Jude in that area, he gives other examples. He goes on to later talk about real instances. Moses, he talks about Balaam. He uses Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 5, talks about Egypt. So he seems to be pointing to other places in Scripture. Now true, we don't have, he talks in Jude about the body of Moses being fought over with the devil. We don't have that specific reference in the Old Testament. So it's possible Jude's just throwing some things out there nobody really knows about. But this Jude 6, 7, it's not found in any other Jewish writings. The idea that angels somehow left their abode and did immoral things with strange flesh. So probably enough time on that. Enoch? Book of Enoch? Yeah, some people say that's where Jude quotes from. I'm not. I don't think that's perfectly the best way to say it. But we'll save that for when I preach through Jude. 
or when we come to the New Testament survey. The extent of the Noahic flood, how far did it go? Was it just in the region, local? This is a popular way to express Noah's flood because if it's, if it's worldwide, that has, a, has implications on geology, that has implications on uh, the theory of evolution, that has implications on what's happening in the natural world at the time. Or is it global? This one, uh, again, hope you're with me on this one because it's pretty clear, I think, in Scripture. There's the death of all creatures mentioned specifically one, two, three times. There's a need for an ark. So if it's just in that region, in that valley that, that Noah was in, why didn't he just go over to the next valley? God's going to punish that valley of sinful people. Noah, your family, you get up on that high mountain over there. How deep is the water? Above the tallest mountain. So let's just say it's the tallest mountain in that area of the Middle East. If the water's high enough to cover the tallest mountain in the Middle East, it's high enough to cover just about the whole earth. Only a few mountain tips in certain areas would even stick out. So again, he's saying it's very deep. It extends above the whole earth. How long did it last? Well, it went on for 40 days of rain. Then Noah's on the boat for... Then later, Peter talks about Noah and the only family to be saved through the flood. And then throughout the world, throughout the world, there's a tradition of what? That the whole earth flooded. And usually that culture will say, we're, and we were the chosen ones after the flood. You know? All right, number 10, interpretive issue. What's the curse of Canaan? What's the curse of Canaan? So these are, this is Noah's grandson. Uh, let's look at 9.25. Noah has three sons. And as soon as they get off the boat, Noah builds a vineyard. They start, you know, getting civilization going again. And uh, he builds a vineyard, gets some grapes, makes some wine, gets drunk, either sleeps without clothes on or some other sinful related action there. And then Ham comes in, sees it, goes to tell us his brothers. Here's God's judgment. So God said, Cursed be Canaan, or Noah's saying this, but it's, it's God's curse. Cursed be Canaan, servant of servants. He shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. So Canaan's going to be a servant of his, his uncle Shem, ultimately, down the line, through the descendants. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. So of the three brothers, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, Ham's going to have a curse. Or at least it says Canaan is, which is the son of Ham. Both Shem, who comes from Shem? We get the word Semites from Shem. Mainly Israel, the Jews. Japheth, other nations that will um, be Blessed by Shem. Blessed by Israel is the idea. The Canaanites, we know who they are. Israel comes into the land after the Exodus. Who are the Canaanites? All the pagan peoples in the promised land that Israel has to fight. What does God say? Not just to fight them to take their land, but he says what? Go and destroy them, everything. Now God's not trying to punish the whole earth at that point. He's already done that with the flood. He'll do that when Christ returns. But the Canaanites specifically have to be punished, he says. Two reasons. One is he's promised the land to Abraham's descendants. 
But secondly, their, their sin has risen up is the idea. Their sin has become so great. Their pagan idolatry in the land needs to be cleansed. So, who's actually being cursed? What is the curse? Because some people say that Ham's curse is where you get the different skin colors. In fact, this was used uh, during the 1800s as a reason for slavery. You know, the, the Christians, the churches, some churches, not all, but some churches in the South especially would say, before the Civil War would say, well, of course the black-skinned person is going to be a slave because Ham's curse, the curse of Ham. And it was that supposedly God had decided that people from Africa, where Ham went, was going to be slaves for the rest of the world. That's not what the text says. They're making that up. But let's look at what the text says. Is it Ham that was cursed? Not Canaan? That doesn't work, right? Because he says clearly Canaan's cursed. Ham's punishment transferred to Canaan? That's possible. God sometimes does that. Uh, Canaan cursed for his own sin? Do we see a sin from Canaan? I didn't read the whole chapter, but I don't think Canaan's ever mentioned uh, sinning specifically. Canaan's descendants cursed. Possible. I think it's best just to say Ham's punishment is transferred to Canaan. Ham sinned. He basically starts the whole process of sin over again. He didn't have to do a lot of work. It's already in all their hearts. Just because they're saved through the flood doesn't mean they're perfect. Sin comes out again. Noah's getting drunk as sin. But then Ham makes a big deal out of it and uh, basically mocks his father. And then Canaan, who's already born at that time, is going to be punished. And the Canaan develops into the Canaanites who have a great animosity towards Israel. And God sends Israel in to wipe them out, punish them. Is this where the, where the sins of the father for seven generations? Yeah, it's related to that. Yeah, so it's not as if Cain, uh, Canaan was perfectly innocent. It could actually be that he was with his father in this. But the idea of the, the sins will follow you many generations isn't that you get blamed for your father's sins. It's that you follow in your father's sins. So your father sinned, you saw him, you're going to do the same thing. And then your kids will see you sinning. And if your life is full of sin, they're going to see that and follow the same thing. So, for example, idolatry gets introduced into a family. What happens? Many, many generations. Yeah, it becomes a tradition. That's the family religion. That's right. He's the only one that can really break that, right? Okay, until Shiloh comes. This is the last one we have here. 11. Last one. Uh, Genesis 49.10. Not every book we go through is going to have this many interpretive issues to look at, but there's a lot in Genesis. So Jacob, look at verse 1, 49.1. Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. So Jacob, Israel, same, same guy. He has 12 sons. And he's going to die, Jacob is. He's lived a good old life. He's down with Joseph, his son in Egypt. The whole family's down there. Lots of kids and grandkids and great-grandkids by now. And he gathers his 12 sons together. And he begins to either bless them or curse them. And again, this is a, this, we might call this a prophecy from God. It's not like Jacob has the power to bless or curse, but he's speaking, I would say, a revelation from God. And so in verse 10, the scepter, so he's talking to Judah. Go back to verse 9, 8, Judah, uh, and 8, Judah, and 9. And then in 10, still Judah, the scepter. What's the scepter? The staff that 
signifies you're the ruler, you're the king. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. What do we know later about Judah? In the tribes of Israel, Judah is where the king, kingly line comes from. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So God is saying that the scepter, the ruler, is always going to come from the line of Judah, the king. Until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So the question is, what does that mean, until Shiloh comes? Is Shiloh a personal name? The Messiah? Is he saying that there will be a ruler out of the tribe of Judah all the way up until the point, basically, that the Messiah comes? And then all the people will actually obey him and follow him? Is Shiloh a town in the central highlands? Well, it is. There is a town called Shiloh. But is that what's being referred to in chapter 49, verse 10? Because that town didn't exist yet. So is, is he somehow talking about later? Shiloh represents, see, Shiloh represents two terms, meaning which is to him, to one whom it belongs. Well, it does represent to one whom it belongs if you interpret it. The Hebrew word, you might have a footnote. Um, you got a footnote on that in your Bible? What's that say? So they're they're giving you different options even in that footnote, right? Um, until Shiloh comes, or it can be translated until he comes to whom it belongs, or until he comes to Shiloh. So even the translators are dealing with the difficulty here. What do you do with this? Does Shiloh just mean ruler until a ruler comes, the ruler? A Shiloh repointed in the Hebrew to mean another word completely different, which means tribute. Well, we don't want to mess with Hebrew points if we can help it, so we're crossing that out. Uh, it doesn't mean ruler because there are other words for ruler. In fact, it was just mentioned earlier in the passage, the ruler's staff. So that's not even there. I don't think it's a town here. So either we just... Translate it literally, or we try to work on an interpretation to figure out who it is that the people will follow. Well, look at the end of the passage. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. There's a him there. So C, could, you know, C has, some, has some merits. Could it be both? So here, here's what A is saying. A is saying that a name for the Messiah, you know, he has lots of names in Scripture that a name for him is Shiloh, that they're calling him by name. So I would say it's, it is to him who belongs all the nation. Who is that going to be? We figure out from the whole Bible that it ends up being the Messiah. So it's pointing to the Messiah. It is a messianic reference. That's pretty obvious, I think, from just the, the Judah reference, the scepter, who else is going to rule. So yeah, I would agree. I just would say, Mike, that Shiloh is not what we wouldn't call Christ. Shiloh as a name, no, I'm just saying but it does name. point. Yeah, it does point. It's the one to whom everything belongs. So that's it for Genesis. Next week, Exodus. Uh, make sure to take a quick read. Just scan if you can. Read the whole book. Exodus, great book. Uh, a lot about Moses, a lot about deliverance from Egypt and the setting up of the worship of God in the tabernacle and their wanderings in the wilderness, the Ten Commandments, so much there. Lord, we thank you for our study this morning. We love your word. We want to know it better. 
Help us to really study, not just to quickly read over it and check a box, but to read carefully, to think about what we're reading, to think about what you're doing, what your purpose is behind these books of the Bible. Give us insight. Amen.